Is it rolling? Yep, we're rolling. Mic check. One, two. All right. Let's get rolling. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you today for grace, for your Holy Spirit, for understanding, for wisdom, for clarity. Open your word to us, Father. We want to know who you are. We want to know your character, how you function. We want to imitate you and be like you, God. And we ask for revelation, God, that we might walk out faithfully and walk worthy of our calling. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, this will be our last session of the semester. And uh, I, um, this session kind of mirrors... Uh, if you look at the course, uh, the praxis course kind of mirrors the theology course in a lot of ways, and uh, both of them kind of climax with session uh, 9 and 10, the theology with 11, and then uh, session 11, session 12 deal with uh, the nature of Israel and the church. And so I did up diagram from uh, that I did on the board, but I just never did it officially, so I I uh, finished that up and printed it out for you guys just to work through the different uses of ecclesia in the scriptures. The uh, assembly of Israel, which had righteous and wicked within it. The assembly of the nations. There are obviously righteous people within the assembly of the nations. Uh, the assembly of the righteous, which have uh, Jew and Gentile in it and uh, the assembly of the wicked, Jew and Gentile. And then on the back side, it was just universally assumed uh, before Acts 10 that you became a Jew if you're going to be counted a part of the Psalm 1, the assembly of the righteous, that would not be uh, destroyed on the day of the Lord. And, uh, and then that was the revelation post-Acts 10 and the confusion that this is how God would bless all the nations uh, before the day of the Lord. Um, but we'll get into that uh, again in this session a little bit more. Um, and then if you look at that uh, diagram, you have the uh, various examples of movement back and forth between those. But I don't have time to really work through those, but... You can kind of think through those on your own if you like. So with this diagram, just start out with the introduction and review. Um, we, won't, we won't meet for the last session, session 12, the Messianic uh, Allegiance of the Church, because that's just the one that both classes, the kind of... The point of both classes is just the uh, allegiance to Jesus unto martyrdom, and so that's the martyrdom class, but I just put the Babylon class from last semester online. So I would encourage you guys to go back and listen through that again in light of the Praxis class, because um, it, was, uh, it was taught a little bit out of context. The whole Babylon class was a little out of context, because it happened in tandem with the theology class, which isn't really fair, but... Anyway, so um, so point A, in light of the age to come, the church is called to walk in the light. 
and reflect the glory of God. The light referring not metaphysically like we've talked about, but uh, temporally, the light of the age to come when the day of the Lord is established on the earth. Reflecting the glory of God, living as in the daytime, reflecting the glory of God, which will be established uh, across the earth as the waters cover the sea. And to this end, we pray unceasingly, asking God for mercy and grace to walk before him with perseverance as faithful witnesses, as Christ's ambassadors. Um, so that just kind of covered the first four sessions, if you're tracking with me. Second Corinthians 4, this was, I just stuck this in to, in honor of Stephen, if you guys, were you guys there on Sunday? That's freaking sweet. Anyway, so Second uh, Corinthians 4, even if our gospel has been veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing at the day of the Lord, those who walk in darkness. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The gospel, the good news of the kingdom, the resurrection, and, uh, and the glory of the Messiah at the day of the Lord in the age to come, and the Messiah who is uh, the image of God, the first fruits of uh, the establishing of the glory of God on earth. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as servants for, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness. So he references the, you know, the original glory of creation, referencing the glory of creation restored at the day of the Lord. So he references cosmogenically and reference to the light that he has put in our hearts as a down payment of the light of the age to come. The Holy Spirit is a deposit of the resurrection. The God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Like we talked about 1 Corinthians 2, where the Holy Spirit is given to us to lead us into the knowledge of God, to lead us into the truth concerning the day of the Lord, like Paul quotes Isaiah 40 and Isaiah uh, 64 in 1 Corinthians 2. And, and the Holy Spirit is the means by which we have the mind of Christ concerning the day of the Lord. So uh, he made his light shine in our hearts to give us revelation of the light of the age to come. In the face of Christ, he's referencing in 1 Corinthians uh, 3 when he's talking about the face of Moses shining, but now the new covenant unto the day of the Lord. And so, uh, verse 7, but we have this treasure, the deposit of the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing the resurrection in bodies of death and jars of clay, because Adam was created out of clay or dirt. So we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So God has ordained it this way that we have parameters of the body of death to keep humility uh, happening in our lives so that you know you don't do the Peter thing and Cornelius falls down and says and worships him and he says, get up, I'm just a fellow servant like you with a body of death, that kind of deal. So we all relate normally and reasonably in light of the day of the Lord, which is, uh, Paul is Paul's dealing with this issue in 2 Corinthians 4 with the false apostles also. So anyway, so uh, <clears throat> it's from God, it's not from us. We're hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, persecuted, not perplexed pushed down, not destroyed, whatever, all that. We always carry around in our bodies 
the cross of Christ that we uh, might also have in our bodies the glory of Christ and the resurrection. Verse 13, it is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. So he quotes Psalm 116, which is just freaking sweet, by the way. <laughs> just because I just read Psalm 116 in light of this this week, and I was like, come on. Psalm 116, the cords of death entangled me, the anguish of the grave came over me, I was overcome by trouble and sorrow, then I called on the name of the Lord, O Lord, save me, the Lord is gracious, righteous, full of compassion, the Lord protects the simple hearted, I was in need, he saved me, be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you, for, for you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death. We're receiving the salvation of our souls, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I, may, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I said, I am greatly afflicted in all my dismay, I said, all men are liars. And so he, he quotes it as a prophetic oracle of a declaration of the Messiah and the believer in the age to come in the resurrection. So that's how Paul interprets it. Good enough for me. So with the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. We believe in the light of the age to come, the day of the Lord. Therefore, we speak to those who are perishing in this age about, uh, about the glory to come. Verse 14, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God in the resurrection. And then that's why, and then it says, therefore we don't lose heart, the next verse, for though outwardly we're wasting away or perishing, inwardly we're being renewed day by day, glory unto glory in our understanding revelation of the glory of Christ. And then he moves into, for we have an inheritance stored up for us in the heavens a body that will not perish, you know, and then we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and then out of that we fear God and we persuade men as Christ's ambassadors. So you have, uh, so you have kind of the first three, the purpose of the church in uh, worship and faith in the day of the Lord, the age to come, discipleship, and uh, the knowledge and revelation of the day of the Lord, and our destiny in the age to come, and evangelism to those who are perishing and uh, the grace of God that is uh, spreading to more and more. And so B, this sojourner calling is lived out in a house church context, which best facilitates a faithful witness. So this is what we talked about week before last and last week. Moreover, it encourages shrewdness towards power and wealth for the sake of loving the poor, honoring eldership, and sending out apostolic teams like we talked about how you function with power and wealth within a house-based assembly, primarily facilitating uh, uh, the poor and needy in the midst, uh, eldership, and apostolic teams. And without all the corporate holdings, it, uh, you can actually do that effectively. Um, so it wasn't like Acts 4. It wasn't some sort of forced, strange, communist uh, world that they lived in. It was uh, simple and reasonable in light of the age to come, to entrust those who uh, were mature to be able to distribute the wealth and bless the poor and needy in the midst and use the wealth and resources for the propagation of the gospel. Acts 4, all believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. 
not that they were all homeless again or lived in a commune, but they were open-handed. They didn't want to hoard wealth in the last days. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. And so you can put those two things together. If you don't have one, uh, you won't have the other. Theology and praxis. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money uh, from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to anyone as he had need. And so this week I was, you know, I used the word shrewdness with those. Uh, in point B, I was uh, meditating uh, over the weekend, I was meditating on Luke 16. And uh, and it was just clear as day. I saw two Bibles in my mind, one open to Luke 16, the other open to the book of Daniel. And uh, <laughs> I called Tim Miller. I was like, dude, Luke 16, Daniel. Because <laughs> Daniel's turned to Daniel Institute of Prayer and Missions. But like we talked about the parable of the shrewd uh, manager, the context is the Pharisees, because right after the parable of the shrewd manager, he says, he concludes it with, no servant can serve two masters. He'll hate the one or love the other. You can't serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men concerning how you use your money and how you use your power. Because, uh, well, keep forward. So, uh, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. And so he's saying in context to the Pharisees, don't use your power and wealth like the Pharisees do for their own reputation, glory, and honor, for their own wealth and, and ease in the situation. You use, which is like the world. They're just like the world. They, they rule over everybody else like the Gentiles. They lord it over them for their own glory and honor. They use the, their wealth uh, of others for their own uh, benefit. They're just like the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, they're shrewd with worldly wealth before the day of the Lord for themselves. But you ought to learn from the shrewdness towards worldly wealth, but not for yourself, to serve yourself, but to serve others. And so he says, he says, uh, he says, uh, verse 8, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than they are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So use your power and wealth to love and bless people instead of building an empire for yourself, and, uh, which happens individually and corporately. And so it just struck me, like I saw two Bibles, one with Luke 16 flipped open, the other the book of Daniel, and that Daniel is the picture of a shrewd manager, a faithful witness, that he uses his power and his wealth in, the, in everything he did to testify to the day of the Lord, and all of his visions were unto the day of the Lord, and he used all of his power and the wealth, not, dis, not, uh, not that he didn't have power and wealth, but he didn't want any of it in this age. His heart was completely set on the age to come. And when he got power and wealth, like he says to Belteshazzar, you can keep your power, you know, third highest in the kingdom. You can keep your wealth for yourself, but I'll tell you the truth of the situation because the day of the Lord is coming for you and you need to repent. 
And, and so he says, you can keep them. He gets the power and wealth anyway, but he uses it shrewdly to bless and, and gain friends for himself and turn others from the darkness. Because that was the whole point of why he made it from his childhood, bowing down and praying towards Jerusalem three times a day, because that's where the Messiah would come and set up shop in the temple and rule over the entire earth. So of course he's going to... So his whole life, theology and praxis and everything is oriented towards Jerusalem and the day of the Lord, all of his visions. And you can be sure that all of his cabinet members and people that were underneath him, all he's talking about is what the prophets have spoken of, of the day of the Lord and his recent visions and his dreams that he's having and revelation he's having about the day of the Lord. Shrewd manager, pretty sweet. Go your own way. For when the end comes, you will arise and receive your allotted inheritance. So uh, see, all of this is in context to the gospel of the kingdom which is inherently Israelocentric. Therefore, the ministry of the church in this age is also Israelocentric. Sorry, I printed out these notes. This is the rough draft, so I'll be doing this quite a bit. To the Jew first, and then the Gentile. And so all of the activity of... The church in light of the day of the Lord, worship, discipleship, and evangelism in light of the day of the Lord, uh, uh, with the watchful, watchful lifestyle, enduring trial and tribulation, demonstrating powers of the age to come, shepherded by fivefold ministry in the context of house church, sending out apostolic teams. All of this happens under the broad banner of to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And uh, this will definitely be the most theoretical of all the sessions because... I don't have any experience in it whatsoever. I don't know any Jews. haven't had really any interaction with Jewish people. But I know it's true. And it's what I read in Acts. And so uh, this is kind of my sticking the flag in the, in the ground and uh, from this day forward kind of deal. So um, one's missiological approach is mirrored by one's understanding of the gospel, which is developed historically. So historically you have kind of uh, three broad veins of theology, which have different nuances. You know, I, I, I gave you that spectrum that has five, but really there's three. You know, at the far end, there's destruction of creation, heavenly destiny. At the other far end, there's restoration of creation, uh, uh, resurrection kingdom destiny. And based on how faithful God is to creation, how you view creation, and therefore how God relates to it and how faithful he is to it. And then square in the middle is dispensational, where you have the two, and he's faithful to the two, uh, material and immaterial. So point uh, one, your your theology or your gospel, and like we've talked about, the theology informs your praxis. And so likewise, when you have a replacement eschatology in which you have the Jewish plan of salvation and eschatology restored creation replaced with the Hellenistic plan uh, of, of uh, salvation, the heavenly destiny. Page two, 
You have the dispensationalists with the Jewish plan of salvation in the material realm and then the Hellenistic plan of salvation in the immaterial realm. So you have, rather than the replacement or superseding, the addition to and the twofold plan of salvation. And then messianic redemptive eschatology, rather than replacement or dualistic, redemptive in which there's one plan of salvation, restoration of creation eschatology. So, in this light, God will heal everything in creation, and he will also heal the, he'll, uh, he'll restore the alienation that's happened amongst man in, uh, in the kingdom. Heal everything in the resurrection, restore alienation in the kingdom as the Messiah rules over all the nations as the head of nations, as the king of the Jews uh, over all the nations. So, Isaiah 2, this is... Uh, what this class will do, we'll kind of review session 12 from the theology class and then make a very simple point. But me just making the simple point of we have an obligation to the Jew first, then the Gentile without a theological backing, it breaks down, So, which is why it doesn't happen. So Isaiah 2, in the last day, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. So the Messiah will rule from Mount Zion and the temple and all the nations will stream to it. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He'll judge between many nations. will settle disputes for many people. And so like the diagram I gave you, the concentric uh, circles of glory from the Messiah and his glory on his glorious throne to the glory filling the temple, the Messiah branching out from the temple, from the city of Jerusalem that will be built up and adorned to restoring and regathering the people of Israel and the land ruling as the king of Israel over all the nations, blessing all the nations. And there's really no way, uh, you know, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 60, Zechariah 9, 14, Daniel 7, there's just no way around that this is the picture that the prophetic scriptures paint in the age to come after the day of the Lord. And so the question is, does that all change uh, in context of the New Covenant? And so that's what the whole theology class was, that no, it doesn't change. The only thing that changes was that the Messiah had to suffer before entering into that glory. But the glory, the picture of the concentric circles of glory that fills the entire earth uh, doesn't change. Even Isaiah 49, which is the big one to swallow in its description. So, uh, point two, missiology, and likewise, so likewise you have the theology, the threefold theology, you have a threefold missiology, a replacement missiology, a dualistic missiology, and then a redemptive missiology, uh, in contrast to a replacement dualistic and redemptive uh, theology or eschatology. Covenantal replacement missiology says the Jew or the Gentile. And so you really have, there's no difference, you know, God, uh, in the New Covenant, God makes no distinction ethnically between Jew and Gentile. And uh, so you, you can, you know, the new Hellenized heavenly destiny gospel, you can preach to Jew or Gentile, it doesn't really matter. Since the Jewish plan of salvation has been discarded or superseded, so also has the mandate and the offer of salvation been discarded. There's no, as there is... Uh, homogeneity in the heavenly destiny, so also is there homogeneity in the missiological preference between Jew and Gentile. 
B, dispensational dualistic missiology. You have Jew and Gentile. You have a missiological approach that, that is twofold, like there's the twofold plan of salvation. And, but since they're equal, you know, you kind of, some people see the heavenly destiny is more important than the earthly destiny. Some, you know, messianic kind of uh, uh, Zionist, Christian Zionists, modern day, a lot of them see the Jewish, the, the earthly plan of salvation is more important than the immaterial, the heavenly plan of salvation. But ideally, as originally uh, configured within the dispensational framework, you have an equality of the material and immaterial perpetually forever and ever. And so you have a... Uh, you have uh, likewise a dualistic missiological approach. The church divides its mission uh, to saving Gentile souls for an immaterial uh, heavenly destiny and then, and then a missiological approach of uh, material support for Israel's material uh, missiology as it's, uh, as it's interpreted. The C, messianic redemptive missiology. You have the Jew, then the Gentile in context to redemptive history. As God uh, established the, uh, the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, as the firstborn nation, and then in kindness extended mercy to the Gentiles. So also there's an emphasis on the elder son first, then the younger son second. Um, and... Uh, In a, in a redemptive way, like in, uh, like in an ancient Near Eastern home where the, because the elder son will function, there's no favoritism. There is a uh, uh, same Lord and Father who richly blesses all who call on his name, Romans 10, in context to Jew and Gentile. And so there's no difference as far as love and blessing in the resurrection and favoritism, but there is a difference in role and function between Jew and Gentile, like in a house, between elder son and younger son, because the elder son will will uh, have a unique position in the management of the household, and so also, uh, and so there's a there's a difference in priority in calling the elder son who has gone astray to versus calling the younger son who has uh, gone astray in the situation. Romans 11. So this is just the. This is the introduction. I'm just going to hit you with the main point, and then uh, and then we'll work back through it. So Romans 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble as far as talking about ethnic Jews, descendants of Abraham, like Paul says in the beginning of Romans 11? Uh, <clears throat> did they stumble so far as beyond recovery, i.e., recovery, repentance unto being saved in the day of the Lord, and and uh, and leading the nations in the age to come, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. So as we work through this, you'll see there's never any even remote uh, reference or assumption that the glory that the, that the ethnic Jews are called to in the age to come changes at all. That, doesn't, that has never changed uh, in any way, shape, or form. So... If their salvations come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious, but if their transgression means riches for the Gentiles, the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? Riches to the world and to themselves. I am, 
I am talking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them, to restore them from the height to which they have fallen, because like Isaiah two, this was the whole this is the whole logic of Isaiah two. For example, it's logic throughout, but you know, Isaiah 2, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established chief among the mountains, raised up above the hills. The nations will stream to it. They'll say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. The Lord will teach us his ways. The law will go out from Zion, from Jerusalem. He'll judge between the nations, settle disputes. They'll beat their swords into plowshares. They'll not take up a sword against nation. They'll, they'll not train for war. Come, therefore, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord, the light of what Isaiah has just seen in the age to come. You have, abandoned, you have abandoned your people, the house of Israel. They're full of superstitions from the east, etc., etc. And so the point is Israel's is the firstborn of the nations was, was called through the Mosaic law to conform to the light of the age to come. And, uh, and so... In their rebellion and in their hardening of heart, God has offered salvation and the resurrection to the Gentiles, but his heart is still, the, the primary emphasis is to arouse the firstborn nation to jealousy that they might be restored to the hope of their destiny in the light of the age to come, that they might walk accordingly. He says, uh, verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. So after their hardening of heart, which God has done sovereignly, which he's demonstrated in chapters 9 and 10, um, after their hardening of heart, God will ordain the same way he sovereignly hardened their hearts, he will ordain a day when he sovereignly will soften their hearts and give revelation to them in context to uh, persecution and crushing. Uh, and they will all be saved and the deliverer will come to Zion and turn godlessness away. And to prove this, Paul works on the reasoning that this has to happen because God will remain faithful to his covenants, to the patriarchs, that their descendants will produce a seed and that Abraham, under his seed, will be father and chief of many nations. And so um, so he says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies on your account because they crucified the Messiah out of their ignorance and, and their hardness. But as far as election is concerned in the resurrection and the kingdom, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. They're not given up on by God. They have not fallen so far that they can't be redeemed. They will be grafted back in. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. So he says, uh, likewise, as the first fruits of harmony and peace that the, that the Messiah will establish between the nations in the age to come, the church seeks to exemplify and model that between Jew and Gentile in this age. And so there's not any... Uh, there's not any competition, even though between the sons within a household, even though the younger sons know that the elder sons will manage the household when the inheritance is given. And so, and so the elder son is called fervently to be restored and to walk in light of his inheritance. And the two are called to walk in unity 
together without disharmony and competition, envy, jealousy, pride, because that's the whole point of pride is we want to rule over the whole world. And, you know, every nation on earth is the best nation, especially the Koreans. They are the greatest people, an ethnic group. On the, They're all like that, but I just, you know, Korean culture. And so, but every nation is this way. I mean, the American culture, we are the greatest, hardest working, most diligent, on time, punctual, most efficient nation on earth, most productive, absolutely. This is why we are down to the five minutes. You have to be five minutes ahead of time everywhere because we have uh, learned how to be perfectly functioning and most effective. Anyway, so uh, in the age to come, this is how Jesus will function. <laughs> and we will all write. Eh. All right, so Romans 13, this is his point in Romans 13. He is still talking. The whole letter is in context to the issues between Jew and Gentile in the, in the Roman church. And so Romans 13, you cannot take outside of the context of what Paul has been establishing throughout the book of Romans, arguing for the first four, three chapters, everybody is under sin and condemned to a lake of fire, Jew and Gentile, and everybody, chapters 4 through uh, 8, is saved by faith in the cross and will be saved and resurrected and inherit eternal life together by the same means. 9 through 11, the, the Jews have been hardened sovereignly by God, but they will be restored. And, the, and then from chapters 12 through the end, therefore there shouldn't be any competition and we should let hope and love abound in our hearts in light of our heavenly des- our uh, destiny in the age to come. Not heavenly destiny. So Romans 13, this is the whole context of chapter 13, especially chapter 14. The whole conversation of chapter 14 is in context to Jew and Gentile functioning together. So he says, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. The day of the Lord, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. He says that right before. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. And so he moves right into, in light of, you know, the, the verse before that is where he goes in, don't give yourselves to drunkenness and debauchery, put on Christ, and don't uh, gratify the desires of the flesh in this age. And then he doesn't change thoughts when he moves into chapter 14, verse 1. He says, he says, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith Concerning the daytime and the age to come, one man lives according to the daytime, as in the daytime, according to his faith. And so he adheres to the Mosaic law. The other man, his faith living according to the daytime, he does not adhere to the Mosaic law. So he talks about what you eat, observing particular days, etc. And so he says... Um, Another man considers every day alike. Verse 10, You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat and receive according to, according to what we've done. Do not 
by your eating destroy your brother from whom for whom Christ died do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil so don't judge each other saying it's evil to follow the mosaic law which was given as a tutor unto the law that would go forth from Jerusalem in the light in the age to come he says do not judge each other for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness peace and joy in the holy in the holy spirit so he's saying listen the daytime live according to the daytime live according to the kingdom of God which is righteousness peace and joy in the holy spirit so live according to those things in harmony and peace and unity among yourselves and don't judge each other about how to live according to the daytime in this age. So uh, because anyone who serves Christ in this way in this age is pleasing to God and approved by men, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. His eating is not as in the daytime. And so I'm I'm not going to get to all the kingdom of God passages. It's just not going to happen. I ran out of time. Maybe next year I'll develop them all. But but this is one of those kingdom of God passages like 1 Corinthians 4, where the kingdom of God isn't of talk but of power, where the whole context surrounding those passages is eschatological. If I drive out a demon by, by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. And so the whole context, though, is... Is he the Messiah, the son of David? And how can a man take, a, take a possession of uh, the, the enemy's possessions unless he ties up the strong man and then takes his stuff? So i got to drive out demons and bind the devil, and then I'll take his stuff. So this thing is a precursor, a sign of what is coming. And so, and so it's designed to, you do this now to convince you of what is coming. And so likewise... It's not you speak as what is coming as though as if it were now. It's the whole design of the prophetic declaration. Because all through the scriptures, the prophets speak of the age to come as though it were now, even with the Messiah speaking in the first person. Behold, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to anoint and has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, etc., etc. The year of vindication to rebuild the desolate cities, to bring salvation. And so... The point is, is that even though it's spoken of in the present, it's obvious in everybody's minds that when Isaiah is prophesying of the age to come, it's not, he's saying it in the present, but it's not then. And so likewise, the kingdom of God passages that are spoken of in the present, it's just because of the certainty and surety of faith. And so likewise, in Romans 15, this is the, 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 the point of understanding the passage is what is faith? And so faith isn't the, you know, the belief in here and now and what's happening here and now. The faith is in context to temporally what is in the future and, and what will come to pass in light of the age to come. And so the thought flow all the way through is that you know, chapter, chapter 10 and 11, Israel is called to walk in, as in the daytime, but they've hardened their hearts and they've rebelled. And so likewise... You, by the renewing of your mind, walk as in the daytime and don't, don't walk in disunity now because the age to come and the light to come isn't about 
these things. You won't have arguments in the age to come over what to eat and not eat. Even though there are things you shouldn't eat now because they're not, that's the whole design of the Mosaic Law. Things that were unclean were unclean because they weren't according to how they should have been in creation. We won't go into a whole unclean discussion, but that's how they, that's how they term things that were unclean is because they, they weren't how they should have been like they were in the beginning, which is why Noah understood what clean and unclean animals were because it was passed down to him how these, how these things functioned originally, but now have turned into bottom-dwelling suckers. And so that's not how it was. Keep moving. So likewise, in the age to come, you won't have arguments and discussions about these things. You know, you won't celebrate the Sabbath because the whole point of the Sabbath was that God created everything in seven days and he rested. And that's how it was in the beginning, God resting over creation, and therefore that's how it will be in the end after the day of the Lord. So the whole point of the Sabbath was to point you to when there will not be any more quarreling and alienation between God and man on the earth in the age to come. So the kingdom of God in the age to come isn't a matter of eating and drinking and days and such. So it's a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit in context to the resurrection and salvation. And so therefore, function likewise among yourselves. Um, and so then he goes on, uh, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak in chapter 15, verse 1. Again, there's no change in thought pattern. It's all exactly the same. We are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement of the day of the Lord in the age to come give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. For I tell you, Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. It's going to happen the way the prophets have played out. But God, but also to have mercy on the Gentiles, so the Gentiles may glorify God in His mercy, as it's written. He quotes the five passages that that talk about the age to come, when there's uh, like Isaiah 11, when the Messiah stands as a banner, He regathers Israel and He and all the nations gather to Him, and there is no more destroying on uh, God's holy mountain. And then He concludes right after that in Romans 15. He says, uh, then he says, uh, the root of Jesse will spring up, who will, one who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will put hope in him. Therefore, may God, may the God of hope in the day, in the daytime, in the age to come, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him. Because the kingdom of God, that's what it, there will be joy and peace in the age to come amongst the nations. Therefore, may God fill you with joy and peace now. And may all of your discussions revolve around joy and peace in light of the age to come rather than arguments over, over, uh, over the law as you trust in Him so you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. All right. So, page four. I don't know how to work through this because a a few days ago I got into a name, the names of God, real heavy into it. I couldn't get out of it, so I put a little more than was necessary. But uh, I'm just going to backtrack, and and I gave you kind of the overarching picture. Now I'm just going to backtrack and work through the gospel is Israelocentric. And therefore, the praxis is Israelocentric. So I'll say the same thing over, only a little bit 
uh, more uh, in depth. So the scriptures were given by God to reveal himself to fallen humanity. The core of this self-disclosure resides in the names that God gives himself. These names reveal his nature and his character, which in turn informs how he governs over creation, thus how redemptive history unfolds. Generally, these names are not in a vacuum, but rather they are Israelocentric. And so when you get discussion on the names of God, you get, you get all the different names of God laid out, but never in context to the God of Abraham and the God of Israel. It's really bizarre, but all of those names that are laid out are always in the passages in context to that. And so, uh, but generally, you know, just in the broad context, God, his nature is in the overarching context of the restoration of creation rather than the destruction of creation and an immaterial heavenly destiny, which is how the names are generally interpreted. But like Genesis 4 their calling on the name of the Lord was in context of their hope in the Messianic seed that would come. And so likewise, Abraham calling on the name of the Lord because God, is, God had promised the seed to come through him when he would be father over all the nations. And so First Samuel 17, when David comes against Goliath the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Because the point is the Philistines were threatening to destroy the descendants of Abraham through whom was promised the Messiah would come and restore everything. And so David's facing Goliath was, in the forefront of his mind is, I am facing you because of my faith in the day of the Lord and the Messiah that will come and the restoration of everything, not because of some nationalistic allegiance to a particular nation. And likewise, First Kings 8, the temple was, I've, my father David had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. The point of the temple, like we talked about, was a signpost of the age to come, like the deposit of the Holy Spirit, when the glory of God in the inner sanctuary would would extend and fill the entire earth in the age to come. Psalm 102, the nations will fear the name of the Lord. All kings of the earth will reveal, will revere your glory. The Lord will rebuild Zion and appear in his glory. So the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion. His praise in Jerusalem. When the people and the kingdoms assemble to worship the Lord. And so from Zion, all the nations will declare the name of the Lord. That he is supreme over creation. He's almighty. He's everlasting. He's, he's, he's zealous, jealous for his people. He's shepherd over his people and over the nations of the earth. He's healer of the nations of the earth. He, he is the God of, of salvation. He is the God of redemption, etc., etc. So all of these names will be declared concerning his character and nature in light of the restoration of creation. Psalm 118, likewise, the stone the builders have rejected uh, has become the capstone. The Lord's done this. This is the day the Lord has made, the day of the Lord. Let us rejoice and be glad. O Lord, save us. Grant us success. Hosanna. So this is why they declare this to Jesus coming into Jerusalem to go into the temple. is because they're in expectation that this is the day of the Lord. Blessed be he, him who comes in the name of the Lord, the arm of the Lord, to execute the day of the Lord, to demonstrate the nature and character of God over creation. 
So, page 5, Isaiah 24, So it will be on the earth and among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, because the earth will reel like a drunkard in the wind, like a hut in the wind. Or as when gleanings are left after the grape harvest, they will raise their voices, they'll shout for joy. From the west they'll acclaim the Lord's majesty. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. Exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, and the islands of the earth. From the ends of the earth, we hear singing glory to the righteous one. When God will gather together the powers in the heavens, the the kings on the earth, into a dungeon, and he'll rule from Mount Zion and Jerusalem uh, before his elders gloriously. Jeremiah 3, at that time they'll call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their hearts. And likewise, Joel 2, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, those who call on the name of the Lord, God who is our righteousness, our sanctifier, who call on his name, our savior, our salvation, will be saved from the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And there will be deliverance when he establishes that throne on Mount Zion. So the names of God are traditionally divided into three etymological categories. The name of the Lord. So you have the, the, the Yahweh name of the Lord. You have the Elohim name of the Lord. And the Adonai name of the Lord. And these aren't hard and fast because the... Uh, the Yahweh uh, Tzabaot, the Lord of the armies or the host, Roah, the Lord shepherd, uh, Rapha, the Lord heals, uh, and Kana, the Lord jealous, are also used with El or Elohim. And likewise, El Shaddai, uh, God Almighty, is used in places with Yahweh Shaddai or Yahweh El Elohe Shaddai, the uh, Lord God Almighty. And then El Elyon, so I kind of put them in, in, uh, in reference to how often they're used. And so most often you have the reference to Tzabaot, the Lord of the Armies, and then also El Shaddai, God Almighty, and then uh, El Elyon, God Supreme, God Everlasting, the Living God, God of the Living, and God of Salvation. And then in the footnotes, you have all the other ones. And all the other ones you hear that are in the list of names that you hear usually are only used once or twice, though important, but these are the the, uh, main names. And then likewise, Adonai is used with those various names and in conjunction with Yahweh and Elohim. Page 6.2, unfortunately, in discussions on the names of God, associations with individuals and nations are almost never discussed. This results... This is the result of the Hellenization of redemptive history and even of God himself. Thus, the nature of God has become etherealized, i.e., your, your various, when you talk about the names or nature or attributes of God, you get all of the Greek Hellenized attributes of God. The immutable, immutable impassable, transcendent, omniscient, omnipresent, etc., detached from redemptive history of the earth, which is... God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, God of Israel, God of the nations, which we'll get to in a second. I put a footnote down there, the Westminster Confession, there is but one, the, so the first line of the Westminster Confession, uh, which is kind of the standard in everybody's minds, whether they know it or not, uh, the first line of the second chapter of God and the Holy Trinity, the first chapter is on the nature of revelation and scriptures, of God and the Holy Trinity, the first line there is but one Only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, 
and what they're what they think of in that what he's what it's thinking of in that context is immateriality invisible without body parts or passions impassable immutable immense eternal incomprehensible etc etc and so you just have like if one of the apostolic fathers had read that he would just sit there and go how freaking gnostic is that number one god is corporeal <laughs> and so you get that was in the in the apostolic fathers and they would just hammer against the the gnostics number one god is corporeal because the Gnostics would establish that God is incorporeal to establish an incorporeal, immaterial, heavenly destiny. And so the Apostolic Fathers would come back, no, God is corporeal, therefore we're made in his image, and we are corporeal, and our destiny is the restoration of creation in a corporeal body. Anyway, <laughs> that's a little bit of Stephen Venable. He's like really on that God is corporeal aspect, which is... Just a little, woo, you say that, and people don't even know what to do with you. So, point three, thus the names of God are used to communicate two things. The quality of his character ruling over creation and his redemptive uh, purpose in ruling over creation. The former is generally expressed through the latter. The former is generally expressed through the latter. Meaning that we know, like my kids know my character and how I am based on how I walk out redemptive history in my household and how I rule over my household and the things I do and how I relate. That's how it's, it's the functional aspects that prove the ontological aspects of my character and who I am. In other words, God proves the quality of his character by remaining faithful to his creation redemptive history, which plays out in the context of covenant with people. So point A, Yahweh Elohe, Avraham, Yitzhak, Yaakob, the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so uh, you get this phrase quoted many times, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid himself for he was afraid to look at. And then he says, I am the God of your fathers. This is my name to declare to the Israelites. I am that I am. This is my name, Yahweh. Uh, it, as a verb derivative of, or an, a noun derivative of the verb to be. And so the name of God, even the name of God, Yahweh, is in context to his covenant with uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. First Kings, 8, uh, First Kings 18, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant. When, he's, when Elijah is talking, when he's on the Mount Carmel, encounter with the prophets of Baal. First Chronicles 29, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. When David is addressing the assembly, when he's devoting the uh, building of the temple to his son. So Luke 20, likewise, this is just commonly understood and carried over into the, into the New Testament. Luke 20, but in the account of the bush, when Jesus is talking to the Sadducees about the resurrection, but in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead the dead rise for the Lord for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Therefore, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. He's made covenant with them, and so inherent in what he's saying is. He's made covenant them. He will raise them from the dead because he's the God of the living. Therefore, there has to be a resurrection of the dead. 
But what's inherent in that station and in that sentence is that in the age to come, when the resurrection happens, he's still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Reaffirming the point of, uh, you know, the, uh, the order of the age to come. Acts 3.13, when Peter's talking to the men of Israel in the temple, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus in the healing of that guy, sign of the resurrection. And then you get the phrase over and over uh, in footnote number seven, the number of, or no, where is it? Footnote number six, the number of, uh, on the previous page on the bottom, the number of times you get that same phrase summarizing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the God of our fathers. And so Deuteronomy 26, when we cried to the Lord, Yahweh Elohe Abutanu, the God, the Lord, the God of our fathers. And so his name, Yahweh, is in context to being the God of the fathers. Um, and then likewise, Acts 5, Acts 24, that phrase is picked up and reassumed in the New Testament. Acts 5, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel, the God of Israel, forgiveness of sins. Acts 24, but I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. And then Yahweh Elohe Yisrael, which is the Lord God of Israel. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go. Exodus 24, Moses and Aaron, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel and ate and drank with him. And now, Lord God, do as you promise so that your name will be great forever. The men will say... The Lord Almighty is God over Israel. So you get all three, Yahweh Sabaot, which I have a different uh, spelling, but it's just the Lord of the armies. So your different translations say the Lord of the host is God over Israel, Elohim al-Yisrael. And the house of your servant David will be established before you, O Lord Almighty, God of Israel. You have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. Your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer when, when God makes the covenant with David, Second Samuel 7, and then he offers the prayer afterwards. First Chronicles 28, Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me from among my whole family to be king over Israel forever. He has chosen my son Solomon, and again, this is the dedication for the temple and the, before the assembly of Israel. He has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Psalm 72, endow the king, the Messiah, with your justice, O God, the royal son with righteousness. He'll rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May his name endure forever. So this is the emphasis on the, in the name of Jesus, to exalt the name of Jesus. May it continue as long as the sun. All nations will be blessed through him. They'll, they, they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel. Yahweh Elohim, Elohei Israel, Israel, who alone does the marvelous deeds, does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. And then you get the same phraseology, the God of Israel uh, in in the New Testament uh, a number of times. Luke 1, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. So this is Zechariah's uh, song, in light of him receiving his, his voice. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us 
in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago, salvation from your enemies from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham as the God of Abraham. So then you also have the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. And so you have this, you know, God describes himself as powerful, mighty, supreme, healer, jealous, etc., etc., in context to being the Lord of Israel, the Lord of Abraham, the Lord also of the nations, and in the, in the, uh, in the glory of the age to come. So Yahweh Adon Kol Ha'aretz, the Yahweh Adon from Adonai, Kol, the Lord of all Kol Ha'aretz, the earth, Eretz. So this is how you'll know that the living God, Elchei, and so there's your, the, you know, God the living is among you, God the resurrection, and therefore has not given up on his creation and will redeem it. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you as soon as and as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord of all, the Lord of all the earth set foot in the Jordan's the, the Jordan its waters downstream stood up in a heap Psalm 97 the mountains melted like wax at the at the presence of the Lord so these are the Psalm 96 through 100 are the nation's psalms the prophetic revelation of how it will be in the age to come the mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, the, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the peoples have seen his glory. Zion heard this and was glad. The daughters of Jerusalem have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord, for you are the Lord most high over all the earth. So you have Yahweh El Yon in context to being the Lord over Judah and Israel before, and Zion and the Lord of the whole earth. Page 9, Micah 4, Rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will give you horns of iron, I will give you hooves of bronze. You'll break to pieces many nations. You'll devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Marshal your troops, O city of troops. Marshal your troops, O city of troops. You're talking about Zion and Jerusalem. For a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathoth, though you are smaller among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So the whole context, when they read, you know, when they quote uh, Micah 5.2, is in context to the age to come, when God will be faithful to Zion, to Jerusalem, even though all the nations gather around it raging, the Lord scoffs and says, I have called one from who I have called a ruler from Bethlehem whose origins are from hold and I've set him on Zion, my holy mountain, and he will extend the rod from Zion and crush kings on the day of his wrath. Wove about four, four together there. but So Isaiah 54, Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. And so that's the one that gets quoted in Galatians 4. I never got around to finishing that. For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He's called the God of all the earth. Did you just see the string of self-revelation there? That is freaking awesome. I don't know if anybody else 
The Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, the God of all the earth, O afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will build you with stones of turquoise, your your foundations with sapphires, I'll make your battlements rubies, etc. Which we'll get more to that in a second. Zechariah 4 Again, I ask, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out olive oil? He said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth, which is quoted directly. These are the two olive branches and lampstands uh, uh, who are anointed before the Lord of all the earth in, in Revelation uh, four eleven four. So they pick up like these, this is the context for the arguing theologically of the relationship of the Gentiles to the Jews in the New Testament. Because God is not only the God who's redemptive to the Jews and will raise them in the resurrection and give them eternal life, but he's also the God of all the earth and the nations of the earth. And he will raise them uh, in the resurrection and show mercy to them. And so Acts 17, the God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. He made from one man every nation of mankind. So he made the world and all the things in it, referring things like we've talked about. You get that in Colossians 1, Ephesians 1. The things refer to the nations of men and the governments and the principalities in the heavens and on the earth. So he made the world and all the nations and the peoples in it. And he is God. He is Lord of the heavens and of all the nations of men. And he let them go their own way in their ignorance. But now he's commanded everywhere, everyone to repent in light of the day of the Lord. And he's offered mercy to the nations of the earth and all the people because he is their God. Romans 3, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith to all who believe, referencing Jew and Gentile. There's no difference for all Jew and Gentile have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Is God the God of the Jews only? He is not. the God. Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles, because he's God of all the earth. So, God has proven as Almighty, Supreme Lord, Mighty, Faithful, Shepherd, Savior, Healer, etc. in the context of fulfilling His covenants as the God of Abraham, Israel, David, Jesus, and the nations. In this way, God's nature could be spoken of as Israelocentric, as the nature of redemptive history and the day of the Lord as a whole are Israelocentric. Page 10. We're about out of time. All right, let's take a break, and uh, we'll finish up the gospel as being Israelocentric, then we'll move into the pras- praxis as Israelocentric.